Hey, welcome back to another episode of Salty Saints Podcast. I'm Zach and I'm chilling with Randy. What's up, man? I'm doing well, doing well. Just uh, amazed at your creativity. An almond joy drink. You know, I kind of amaze myself sometimes, Randy. <laughs> when I... I bet you do. <laughs> I saw, I see a toasted almond tea and hot chocolate. And I'm a satisfied man. You know what I'm saying? There you go. There That's you all go, you man. need. Um, today, we're talking about you, dude. Mm-hmm. How I'm, exciting. I'm regretting that I even mentioned this yesterday. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm kind of like disturbed that it was your idea because like, <laughs> Lord knows you probably don't really want to just like sit and rant about you for an hour, but I want you to, so I'm going to make you. Yeah. You know, I... Get up there where uh, I'm of the age now that I like telling stories. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I like telling stories. What's yeah. that say about me? You're an old, you're an old soul. <laughs> oh man! All right, fair enough. All right, so this is the Randy Spate faith story. Yeah, not so much, not so much, because usually a faith story is conversion. My conversion is very, very, very plain and simple. Let's do it anyways. Born in a Christian home. My dad, when I was about two, he resigned at a uh, company that he worked for, a steel factory, actually. He was a a foreman of a a group there and uh, left that and started farming. He bought two old, pretty much non-functional tractors, and after about... Four years, maybe, of trying to eke out a living as a farmer. Figured out, okay, that's not for me. By now, I was about six years old. Moved into a house that I can still remember that we installed indoor plumbing into that house. So uh, it wasn't there when we got there. Wow. But I think I was, I don't know, I might have still been in diapers or something. But uh, I can still remember putting the indoor plumbing in. Um because that kind of stands out. Yeah, that's a life-changing moment. (laughs) It is, it is. Oh, the convenience, the convenience. So uh, from there he decided uh, that he would try his hand at pastoring. Found out later that the way he did that was uh, he had a book of sermons and uh, the preacher was literally reading a sermon every Sunday morning. And it happened to be the book that Dad was reading. So uh, he brought the book to church with him, and as as he was walking out, he put the book in front of his Bible and held it up like this when he went to shake the preacher's hand. And the preacher saw that Dad was reading the book of sermons he just preached from, knew he had been found out, and said, Well, Leonard, if you think you can do any better, have at it. So he did. Wow. (laughs) He... um, he went to one semester of Fort Wayne Bible College and uh, did a course in Old Testament, a course in New Testament, a course in preaching, and a course in theology and figured, I don't need to study anymore. And after a semester, he started preaching and preached for the next 45, 50 years of his life. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. By the time I was about 11... There was a special revival service in the town that I grew up in, and Stanley Tam 
came to speak. And uh, it's interesting because Stanley is a is a kind of a big deal in Northwestern Ohio, uh, formally and officially and legally turned his business over to God uh, in in the the charter of his business. God is the owner. And what that translates into is that all of the profits, um, I, I think now 15% of the profits go back into the business to have it grow and, and uh, improve. 85% goes to, of the profits, goes to uh, an organization called Every Community for Christ, for evangelism throughout the world. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a neat story. Now, <clears throat> Stanley knew two sermons, and I know both of them by heart because years later I translated for Stanley in Spanish. He had the story of his conversion and then the story of his growth. And uh, this night, for whatever reason, he didn't preach either one of those sermons. He preached about hell. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And at the end of his sermon, I decided I didn't want to go there. So Stanley said, basically, if you don't want to go there, uh, come down front and talk to me. So I went down front and uh, made my profession of faith, was baptized a couple of months later, and kind of grew up in the church. But it's a very, very plain, normal, uh, I wasn't a mass murderer, I wasn't a drunkard, I wasn't an adulterer. I was an 11-year-old child, for Pete's sake. But still, God got a hold of me. Let me know that what I did, I needed to do for myself. I couldn't rely on mom or dad. And, uh, yeah. Cool. Cool, cool. You said you were translating for him? Yeah. At 11? No. Okay. Years later. Okay. All right. I was like, wait. At about 35. Okay. All right. That's fair. Um, Okay. So... Pretty basic, uh, you know, conversion story. Um, grew up in a Christian household. Yeah. And what? I didn't grow. And I, I really stagnated okay. in my teen years. I just, yeah, I went to church. I went to youth group. Uh, even sang in a traveling gospel choir. And um, another fellow and I, uh, after that, we would go out and we'd play guitars and we'd play for youth and whatnot, and uh, uh, he ended up being my roommate in college, and uh, yeah. Okay. My first guitar, in fact, he just bought a Fender, my first real guitar. I traded in my Harmony and got a Fender acoustic. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So you said you really didn't want to focus on all that stuff. Uh, right. What you wanted to talk about was when you lived in Columbia. And really, even just slightly before then, I was in college. It was how I started to grow. Okay. And uh, two missionaries returned from Columbia with a new concept that they called discipleship. And it wasn't something that the church was doing. Uh, to be a Christian meant you went to church on Sunday mornings. And maybe you didn't cuss and you didn't drink and maybe you didn't go to movies. But that was pretty much what it was. Uh, It was more about what you did and didn't do. 
And mm. they said, no, there's more to the Christian life than that. And so they invited uh, at Asbury College. Uh, I went to uh, Margaret Brabon's house for a missionary meeting. These two missionaries stood up and said, uh, we want to start a discipleship group. So there were 12 of us, I think, who expressed interest, came to an initial meeting. About nine of us stuck with it. And what they asked us for was 10 hours a week, which when you're in when you're in college, yeah, it's a significant chunk it's a lot of, time. of time. Yeah. And what that translated into was one hour a day in your personal devotions, whatever that meant. Bible study, prayer, if you wanted to sing, if you wanted to, you know, whatever devotions was for you. An hour a day in devotions, two hours a week in a meeting with the other guys. And that typically started at 7 o'clock on Monday nights and ended at 11 o'clock on Monday nights, that two hours. Um, And then, yeah, and then one hour a week with one of them where we talked about ourselves. Okay. And uh, that made all the difference. The summer before that happened, uh, I went to Japan. I was... uh, uh, it, was, it was a mission trip, and uh, went to Japan and uh, just did mission trip kind of things. We handed out flyers, and uh, a lot of what we did was to tear down a Quonset hut in, uh, from an army base, rebuild it on the mission compound, and store implements from the army base that had been donated that were going to be used at a camp on one of the islands in, in Japan. So they had, they pretty much ransacked a, a kitchen and we had all of the stoves and the serving trays and but they needed a place to store it. So we rebuilt a Quonset hut. Uh, you know, one of those semi-circular buildings. Right. And, uh, kind of like a hangar. Like a small yeah, kind of like a small hangar. While I was there, uh, knowing that I was going to be going in about a week, I'd gotten close with this one Japanese kid and he said, could I talk to you? Sure. So he came and he said, Randy, I I just wanted to hear from you. He said, my spiritual life has been just this roller coaster ride. I I go from mountaintop experiences to valleys and just constantly. I don't seem to be able to get ahead of it. I don't seem to be able to grow. I'm just up and down, up and down, up and down. I have no idea what came out of my mouth. But what was going on in my head was, dude, you're describing my life. Uh, I have no right to be saying anything to you because that's me that you're talking about. It was the discipleship group that kind of got me on a slow, steady uh, pattern of growth. And the thing that was so different about the discipleship group is we were taught how to study the Bible, taught basic inductive method. And uh, we learned it, we applied it, we did it together. I did it on my own. During that year, um, I did my first book study, and it was Malachi from the Old Testament. Just 
absolutely fascinated me that I could go to God's Word and discover things that nobody else had told me. Right. But it it's very clear the way it says it. And looking for structure and looking for repetitions and those kind of things, the whole book just began to make sense to me. And I spent probably four or five months studying it and learned a lot from it. When I finished that, I figured, okay, the next book of the Bible is Matthew, so I'm going to study Matthew now. So Malachi's four chapters, Matthew's 28. So that took me a couple of years. But same thing, I, I, I just learned so much. And it was as I poured myself into Scripture, began to learn from Scripture, that my spiritual life began to respond. And it wasn't that it was a steady climb at that point. I was still kind of doing this, but I was kind of, you know, the highs would take me a little bit higher and the lows weren't quite as low as the last time. So I was kind of moving on an upward path. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Like I've I've definitely felt that too. <clears throat> and like I I've honestly, like I've told you before, I'm a fairly yeah, fa- fairly new to like really committing to the Christian walk like right. last right, few right, years. Right. Whereas I've been Christian my whole life, but yeah, like once you start to really get in the groove of like being surrounded by other believers who are encouraging you and trying to help mm-hmm. you grow, you're still going to fall. But like you just said, and you've said it better than I've heard that you know, the highs are higher and the lows aren't quite as low. That's and right. That's, that's nailing it, man. Yeah. And that's still kind of, I mean, you know, I go through periods where I may be doing this and going down a little bit, but <laughs> right. what I find is the more I dedicate myself to studying God's Word, uh, the better it goes for me. Actually, preparing the devotionals here more recently has been really helpful to me because it gets me back into God's word, trying to find something to be able to share on a regular basis right. with, with the people around me. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, so like with inductive Bible study, I mean, d- while we're here, do you want to give a few tips to anybody that yeah, might be listening? Yeah, sure. And we've had courses on inductive here and, uh, other things. Um, <clears throat> you can go way deep. And I've gone way deep, but you don't have to, but you don't have to. Uh, The basics of inductive Bible is starting, first of all, saying the first question you ask of a text is not, not, what does it mean? It's what does it say? And you spend a lot of time looking at what it says. Now, one of the things that I used to do on a very regular basis, I would read Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes, is a, it's, it's not a novel, it's a collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. So I had a book of the collection of all of the Sherlock Holmes stories. But I would read it because what Sherlock always said was simply that he observed things that other people also saw, but they didn't pay attention to. And that's... I was kind of reading that, reminding myself that's what we're trying to do, but also looking for just the way that he looks around. And one of the things that happened 
my wife and I, of course, went to Columbia. We married between our junior and senior year. Uh, I married when I was 21 years and two weeks old because at that point in time, before 21, you had to have your parents sign your marriage certificate, and I was not going to do that. Right. So at 21 years and a couple of weeks, we got married. Okay. Um, but we went to Columbia. Uh, after a year working with youth, I began to teach at a seminary. And while we were there in the seminary, there was another fellow and I who were, he taught primarily Old Testament and I taught primarily New Testament. And uh, together we were teaching all of the Bible courses in the seminary. Four years, and Bible was 50% of the curriculum. So we had a really heavy load. And we were constantly studying and trying to... What, what we ended up doing, I was preparing two and three classes at a time. And what happened was I would be studying from the book of Mark and from the book of Genesis at the same time. And passages that I was studying kind of melted together. And I said, oh, gosh. That's what that means in Mark. He's talking about Genesis. And I was seeing things that I never saw before, and that just set me on a, a lifelong quest to try to figure out in the New Testament what is alluding, what's going back to the Old Testament. Right. And I love doing that, and I think the Lord has helped me to do that. And I love doing that and seeing people go, Oh, wow, I didn't know that. I've never seen that. And there's so much of it. There is. It is all over. Right. Something like one of the, of course, it all depends on how you count it, but uh, one of the articles that I read said that about 75% of Jesus' words is direct allusion or quotation of the Old Testament. I believe that. And we don't go back to the Old Testament to look and see what he's talking about. There's even some, like, intertestamental stuff. Uh, there are. Like, there are. Yeah. Concepts, anyway. Right. The more you know that, and the more, actually, if you go back and spend time to look at what Jesus was quoting, you begin to see a richness there. Because they didn't have a Bible like we had, where, you know, you can take a page and say, okay, Leviticus 14, there it is. They heard it. Right. They were memorizing it. So when they quote a little passage, it brings to mind the whole context, the whole chapter. You go back and you read the whole chapter and you go, oh, wow. Right. Look at that. That was there, too. And That's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that began to change the way I was looking at Scripture, and it, it really helped. It, it began to make a lot more sense when I did that. Okay. And so, um, how long did you teach at uh, the seminary in Columbia? Well, I was there for a total of 17 years. That was interrupted by a four-year time. Then I went to Toronto, Canada to, to do studies. I went with the idea of uh, studying in the Old Testament and went to study with a specific individual named R.K. Harrison got there and found out that he was retiring the next year. So I said, okay, I'm not going to do that. Mm. So I switched to New Testament, and Dick Longnecker was the uh, professor there. 
I read some books in seminary by Dick Longnecker and was fascinated by him. He's a great guy. And he focuses on two things, intertestamental literature and hermeneutics. And those were things that I was very interested in. So I studied everything that I could with uh, Longnecker and did what I had to do to get a, uh, get a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, chose a topic for my dissertation in the book of Luke, which took me out of Dr. Longnecker's abilities, put me with another guy who was not very helpful. Uh, I'd do a chapter, send him the chapter, and six months later I'd get it back. And I was trying to get this thing written, get it, get it done, and I was just stymied because until he got back to me, I didn't know if what I was doing was right or wrong. Right. First couple of things that he sent back to me, he, he would say, well, the content's okay, but your style is all wrong. you got to change this, that, and the other. And um, he told me I needed to learn how to write English, which he was a native German speaker. So uh, <laughs> he actually he knew more English than I did. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was frustrating. At that point in time, I actually... Because I didn't want to delay any longer, I went back to Columbia with the idea of finishing my dissertation in Columbia. Went back to seminary, taught in the seminary. But within three months of going back, the existing field leader in Columbia came to me and he said, I'm leaving. He said, I want you to be the new field leader. Well, it was an elected position. I said, well, you don't get a pick. He said, well, I said, that's okay. I think people would support you if you'd put your name up. And I said, well, let me pray about it. I prayed about it, and after about a month, went back to him and said, okay, yeah, put my name up. So uh, the the field did elect me, and uh, he left, and the month after I was elected, uh, the main presidential candidate in Colombia, who was running on a platform of, I'm tired of the drug war. So when we arrest a drug dealer, we're going to ship him to the United States. Let them deal with him. He was shot and killed. Um, the uh, and and just from the uh, opinion polls, he had like a seventy percent following. Wow! I mean, he was going to be the next president. So uh, the drug lord said, "We don't want that." So uh, they killed him. They killed him in the middle of a political speech. Man, sort of you know the the old TV thing where you shoot the guy when he's standing up right. there speaking. Well. They just walked up with submachine guns, about four of them, and just him and everybody in his party and the people in the front row. And There was no trying to find out if it was a magic bullet. It no, was no, no. It lots was, and lots yeah, of It was lots and lots of bullets. <laughs> so the, um, the government formally, legally declared war on the drug lords. Ooh. Two days later, 
in the city of Medellin, which was kind of the center of the drug lord, Pablo Escobar, and the Medellin cartel, um, from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., 13 bombs went off every hour on the air. Now, Medellin sits in a valley. So when a bomb went off in front of a government building, whether that was a bank you or, heard it. or you not only heard it, it reverberated. And every hour on the hour, uh, they didn't cause a whole lot of damage with those bombs, but it unnerved the people. It sent a message, you want war, you got war. And it unleashed a period of violence in Colombia for about four years that would it was absolutely unlike anything that I've ever seen my dissertation went out the window all of a sudden we were in survival mode we were talking about you know uh, what do we do how do we first of all how do we successfully minister how do we help the people that we're ministering to deal with the violence that they're going through and how do we survive in all of this. Um, it was wild. It was wild. In 19... I'm probably going to get the dates wrong. I think it was 1989. 45% of Colombian families were directly impacted by murder. Somebody in their Immediate, immediate family was killed. I mean, here in Indianapolis, you know, we're at, I don't know, it's around 200 murders now in, in uh, uh, 2021. And we're halfway through the year and, and we're upset about that. Columbia would average about 200 a, a week. And we're at 200 a year here And in we're Indy? 200 a year. Now, you know, we're talking about a whole country. It's literally. But the city of Medellin averaged 90 every weekend. 90 every week. So yeah. what's that, like 25 times more a year? It was, it was amazing. Everybody knew somebody. Um, we were planning a church, and a 12-year-old girl uh, went to our church. She was with her grandmother in a taxi. They were going someplace, and they drove between what they didn't know at the time, but it was a car bomb and the police uh, truck, a big flatbed truck. The police would just pile on the back, and they put the car bomb there, knowing that the police would drive by. The taxi went in between it. They set it off. Uh, the shrapnel just obliterated everybody in the taxi. They couldn't even find pieces. And Carolina was was uh, killed right there. We, we didn't even have a body to bury. And that story is just repeated time and time and time and time again every week. Linda was, when we were at uh, the Madsen's house, uh, she's talking about she was in somewhere and a guy got shot and she ran out like they tried to help him but the like they watched him get shot but like by the time they got out there to do anything i mean it was just too late and that just happened in the middle of the street like yeah. just middle of the day like it wasn't like a take him out to a dock somewhere and like right, you know, right, just, right. 
During that period of time, uh, they actually passed a law that motorcyclists could not wear helmets because that was the preferred way to kill. Uh, you would have the motorcycle driver, and the guy behind him with his knapsack would whip out a Uzi and drive by the, the hit, just empty the Uzi into it, and then the motorcycle would take off down the sidewalk, down an alley, anywhere they wanted to go because oh. it was a motorcycle. Oh, so the... And the helmet provided anonymity. Gotcha. Nobody knew who it was. From that day to this day, all license plates on motorcycles have to be printed on a helmet, and during that period of time, it was illegal to wear a helmet. You had to be able to see the face of whoever was driving in the rider. That's crazy. It was, it was insane. You know what the worst part of that whole thing was? It, the violence, of course, is, is horrible. But one of the unintended um, uh, byproducts of that is the loss of innocence. Um, we were building a chapel in the seminary grounds, and one of the fellows fell from a second story down to the first floor and really messed himself up pretty bad. So he fell on, he fell on uh, jagged cement that they had broken up and thrown aside, so... We took him down to the hospital. While he was in the hospital, they, they uh, rushed this guy in. We were there waiting to be seen, and they wheeled this guy in on a gurney, and he had three bullet holes in him. Uh, dead men don't bleed. There was no blood. There was just big holes. And uh, we were there talking, and, wow, did you see that? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. You think he was dead? There was a 10-year-old girl. Cutest little thing. Oh, yeah, he was dead. Oh, I've seen this. Yeah, I was, he wasn't bleeding, so his heart wasn't pumping. He was dead. and There's no way he could have survived that. And It was just a matter of fact. It was just, yeah, and, and we got a new puppy. And, uh, yeah, and we're going to have mac and cheese for supper and oh yeah he was dead it was it meant nothing to her we're getting to that stage here in indianapolis where we hear on the news the other person shot overnight and we stop and we think oh that's a shame i wonder what the weather's going to be it doesn't cause an outrage and it ought to cause an outrage it's it's on such a global scale now, though. Like it's it just everywhere, it all the time. You can see anything you want, whenever you want, through the internet. You, yeah, nothing affects us. Right. The government just told us that UFOs, in some capacity, are real. Which I'm not saying like aliens are real, but I'm saying like right. there are floating things in the sky that our government recognizes that they don't know what they are and yes. they can't explain them. And everybody just went, oh, anyway. Okay. So um, yeah. <laughs> it's like. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Part of that is, you know, just everything, but especially with the violence here in Indianapolis, you know, and globally. It's 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 just life anymore. I'm and jaded. It shouldn't be. I'm jaded. I am too. I do the same thing. I see the news and 
I watch it for the weather and I, news of a new murder and, oh, gee, what a shame. Is it going to rain? <laughs> I don't want to get us off topic, but, like, while, while we're on that, I think part of the reason why it's so hard for me is because I don't know what to believe anymore. Yeah. It's not that death and murder and things like that don't affect me, that don't bother me, don't upset me. It's that I never know if I'm getting the whole story. I never know if I know what's really going on. And it's like, it doesn't matter who's saying it, what side's saying it. It's, it's just so much conflicting information coming from every direction. I'm stuck in the middle going, I don't know. And I kind of don't care yeah. anymore. Yeah. Like, And that's not good. Even the quote-unquote fact-checkers are... They all have biases, too. Yeah, they're, they're biased. Everything. So my fact is not necessarily your fact. At some point, we do need to do a podcast on revisionist history. Yeah. Because it's a mindset. And history is history. What happened, happened. Well, okay. So, so kind of speaking to that, speaking to this being a problem. Yeah. To me, and, and maybe, maybe you can speak on this with your past experience even. Um, to me, though, since I don't know what to believe. I don't know what when I hear something, if it's even the truth, if it's just a spin on the truth or whatever. I know what I can do, and that is affect what's happening in my immediate circle, yeah. what's happening in my community, what's happening around me. And I feel like if everyone took that approach and would quit worrying about the news, we could solve a lot by just investing in what's happening right in front of us. Jesus didn't try and fix the whole world at he, he he did it by the 12 men around him. Yeah. You know? Like, That's right. That's right. You know, uh, um, about a month ago, we did a, a couple of podcasts on why do bad things happen to good people. And uh, one of the things that we did talk about there is the fact that in Scripture, there is no such thing as a good person. <laughs> we all have the line of sin instead of them and us. It's it runs down through each one of us. Um, every time I hear about violence, I try to in my better days. I take a good look at my life and I say, "Okay, what am I doing that engenders violence? Violence breeds violence. Am I being violent to someone else?" And that doesn't necessarily have to mean that I'm punching somebody else in the face. It might mean that my Facebook posts are aggressive. It might mean that the way I respond in traffic is aggressive. It might mean who knows what it means. But there's a domino effect. Yeah. Uh, if, if I cut somebody off or flip somebody off in traffic and make them angry, uh, they might go home and, and be more prone to beat their wife. Right. So I need to look at what I'm doing and try to make sure that that line of sin that runs through my life is under control. Right. Right. But you, you, you've accepted it. You know it's there. Now you're going to do something about it. Exactly. Um, so, like, living in Columbia in such a violent time, how did the church respond? <laughs> uh, 
Um, a couple of things happened. Uh, the church never stopped meeting. The church continued to meet. Um, at the beginning of the violent time, the church was actually targeted. At hmm. least the guerrillas said that they would target the church. Now, you're talking like the church overall? Or are you talking The like, church overall. So like Catholic and evangelical, like Protestant? More so the evangelical because okay. Catholic uh, in Colombia understand Catholic is not another brand of Christianity. It is Christianity. Oh, and so if you're not Catholic, you're not Christian? You're a cult. Okay. I got my visa through the Ministry of Cults in Colombia. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> so I was I was leading a cult in Colombia. Now, it's, it's a little bit different today, but that's because the... Uh, um, the church, because of the way the church responded. So, first of all, as a mission, uh, in the late 80s, very early 90s, a lot of mission groups began to pull out of Colombia, uh, retract their missionaries. and uh, They would send them to other, other places, Ecuador, uh, Mexico, wherever. And uh, we got the order. Uh, from OMS, yeah, uh, begin to plan your withdrawal. So, I went around and I talked to all of the all of the people. I think at that point in time, I'm pretty sure we were the biggest mission group in Medellin. So I went. Well, I had about a dozen people that were there that I was responsible for, and a couple of them, a couple of single ladies were like within months of coming back anyway for their furlough time. So I said, hey, just get your ticket early. Go back and tell our story. They said, okay. They, they went. But I had a, a couple that was retired who was down there volunteering their time. Uh, there was another family with three kids. Lynn and I had four kids. So, you know, there were, there were uh, around a dozen people total that I was responsible for, I went to them and talked to them, were being asked to leave. Do you want to leave? No, I don't want to leave. Okay. So I can still re <laughs> I can still remember calling back up here, and that was a time when you couldn't just dial right. and call internationally. You had, to, you had to call an operator and say, I want to call the United States, and call went through about an hour later. And I talked to the to the guy there at OMS. He was the associate of international ministries, associate director. And I said, Grant, we respectfully request permission to mutiny. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, we don't want to go. It's not that bad. I mean, there are bad spots. Don't get me. Uh, there are bad spots. We're not going to go to those spots. Here where we are, it's relatively safe. So we think mission groups are being withdrawn because the media in the States are uh, making it out to be much more uh, encompassing than it really is. Grant said, well, I can't make that decision. He said, the director happens to be in Ecuador, so I'll call him 
and I'll call you back. So about two hours later, I get a call. It's Grant. Grant said, okay, here's what Bob said. Bob said, if, uh, if it's not that bad, he and his wife are in Ecuador. They're going to come and visit you. <laughs> I said, oh, no, 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 no. They, they, they don't want to do that. And Grant said, Bob told me you'd say that. <laughs> and he told me to say, if it's not safe enough for him to come and visit, it's not safe enough for you to be there. Plan your exit. And I said, okay, he can come. He's going to bring his wife. Oh, no, 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 you don't want to bring his wife. He's going to bring his wife. Okay, okay. So Bob and Phyllis came down to visit, not knowing the language, stepping in the middle of a country that, by all the media, people were just shooting each other right and left. And they came. Spent about three days with us, and at the end of the three days, he said, you're right, it's not that bad. You can stay. Be, be wise about what you do. Figure out where the violence is happening. Don't go there. <laughs> and we did. And we said, everybody, this was uh, the advent of cell phones. So it was, you know, early 90s. Right, right. It was a flip phone type thing. Everybody had a cell phone. We all had each other's number. And we could call each other if we needed to. Um, nobody traveled alone. And anytime anybody was going somewhere, we said, make sure that someone knows where you're going and when you're going to get there. If you don't get there on time, call and let us know what the delay is. Because if you're not there and you're 20 minutes late, we're going to come looking for you. And for about a year, that's the way we lived. And uh, it, it, it worked. Now the church, the church in general, began to minister to the people that uh, were affected by the violence. Um, the church grew. Before that period of time, Colombia was about 1% evangelical. Within 10 years, it was around 10% evangelical. Wow. Because the church ministered. In 1993, Colombia decided that they needed to rewrite their constitution. My boss in the seminary, uh, Jaime Ortiz. He had uh, he had studied in uh, Londrina Bible Seminary in Londrina, Brazil. So he spoke Portuguese. Londrina was related to Princeton. When he finished, he was such a good student that Princeton said, "You got a full ride scholarship. You want to come to the states? You find a way to get here." and will pay for all your education for wow. a doctor's degree. He said, no, I want to go home to Columbia. I, I was sent by my church to go back to the church and help the church with what I've learned. That's what I'm going to do. Now, this was back when things were still fine in Columbia. It was 
Medellin was the city of eternal spring, and the kids would run around in the streets and play soccer, do whatever, and there was no problems. But Jaime saw all of this coming. Um, when it came time for Jaime to get a doctor's degree, he decided he wanted to study law, and nobody could figure out why. When he was asked what kind of law he wanted to study, when he went to law school, he said constitutional law. Why? Nobody practices constitutional law. But that's what he wanted to study. Well, in 1993, they decided they wanted to rewrite the Constitution. Who better than a lawyer who has studied constitutional law? Wow. So Columbia said, we don't want politicians writing our Constitution. So they said, uh, uh, only non-politicians, only people who are not in public office can run for the Congressional Assembly. So guess what happened? All of the politicians resigned in mass. So they wouldn't be politicians. And they had ex-presidents, ex-senators. I mean, just everybody was a huge name, very well known. Uh, the ballot, they, they elected the members of the Constitutional Congress uh, publicly. The ballot was four pages long, and for people who couldn't read, it had the picture of the candidate. And it was weighted if this party was elected with 20% of the votes, then 20% of the 70 members of the Constitutional Assembly would come from that party. So they had a total of around 270. Well, the evangelicals got together and said, let's, let's run. We think we have something to say. Uh, they selected Jaime as the person to run. He was going up against ex-presidents, you know, ex-senators, just on down the line. The day after the election, when they tallied all the votes, he had the seventh highest tally of votes in the whole country, enough that he and another person in the party actually were elected to the Constitutional Assembly. And nobody knew who he was. Everybody knew everybody else. Nobody knew who he was. So the next day, seminary campus was flooded by news trucks, cameras, newspaper writers, Where's Jaime Ortiz? Well, Jaime, at that moment, happened to be unplugging the commode of one of the students' apartments <laughs> because that was something that he knew how to do. And there he is, and he comes out holding a plumber's helper. <laughs> and they interview him. And just think what that does. Here's the country who wants a fresh start. And the first interview with this guy, he's holding a plumber's helper while he's there on national TV. Everybody loved him. He just absolutely loved him. He's a normal person. He's just a normal person. So when it came time to split up the assembly, they decided they had seven areas, uh, uh, civil law, criminal law, uh, 
Jaime asked for and was put in the group 12 senators who wrote the preamble and what would be equivalent to the Bill of Rights, sort of the basis for the entire Constitution. An ex-president of Columbia was in there. Senators, all highly political people. <clears throat> they talked among themselves about who would be the president of the first commission. Oh, the ex-president should be. And he said, well, I want to hear other points of view. Finally, somebody said, Jaime, what do you think? Jaime said, we ought to vote. Colombia's a democracy. There's 12 of us here. We ought to cast votes because the principle of our democracy is free public elections. I don't think any of us should be appointed as a, as a president. Let's vote. President asked for the floor. He said, I cast my vote for the only one among us who, on a matter of principle, would turn down an appointment to a prestigious position and run on principle. I vote for Jaime Ortiz. And he was elected unanimously. 12 votes in favor. <clears throat> Every other person that was interviewed over the next year while they were writing the Constitution, Mr. Ex-President, Mr. Ex-Senator, when they interviewed Jaime, who possibly had the most prestigious position there, it was Pastor. Pastor Jaime, what do you think? What happened in the country of Colombia is being an evangelical went from being something that you hid. Because if you wanted a job, you didn't let people know that you were an evangelical. No, you were just like them. It went from that to all of a sudden... So who are the evangelicals here? Because they're people of principle. They're people we can trust. The church grew. Church grew to about 10% of the population in about 10 years. Absolutely incredible. That's mind-blowing. It's been since Jaime stepped aside. After that, he went on to become a senator uh, he stepped out of the public eye. He died about four years ago. But uh, the evangelicals have mismanaged it since then. They haven't had a person like Jaime who was selfless, who said, what are the principles here? Everybody had an agenda, and just like everybody else had an agenda. Even if their agenda was good, it was an agenda. Jaime would say, what's the principles? What, are we, what, what does scripture say? The, the Constitution of Colombia starts with the word. 
the Colombian, having been created by God and having been invested with the image of God. And it goes on from there. We don't do that. Our constitution isn't that strong, but Columbia's is. Man. Yeah. That's awesome. I've heard you tell that story before, but not in that depth. Um, I grew a lot watching him. Yeah, he was a he was a man full of warts as well. You know, he had he had his issues, he had his struggles, but uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, and maybe more than anybody else, he brought about the evangelization of Colombia, not by being a huge preacher, but by doing what God had created him to do. It's almost like in a, a prophet, man. Way. Like it's, yeah. it, I mean, that's the, what the prophets did. I mean, they just kept bringing it back to, what's God say? What's yeah. God say? That's right. And, and that's usually right. they were met by getting killed. So Heine that's right. did a really good job. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Man. And that was while you were there. Oh, yeah. Were you good friends with him? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. Good enough friends that he would call me down. He'd call me into his office and say, you got to stop doing that. <laughs> man. So what, what eventually caused you to leave Columbia? We left Columbia in 1994. Because at that point in Colombia, the, the war with the uh, guerrillas and with the drug traffickers, the which by then had like... merged, not G-O-R-G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A, yeah. Uh, the guerrilla movement has been around since 1945. Uh, it came from a period called La Violencia, the violence, that's just what they call it, uh, at within the first year of the violence actually uh, conservatives and liberals brought guns into the Senate chamber, overturned tables and began shooting at each other from behind the tables inside the Senate chamber uh, well, guerrillas at that point in time uh following Marxist ideology. This was the mid-40s, so heavily influenced by Russia, by China, uh, by, by Cuba, and uh, other places. Uh, the guerrilla movements have been around. They are still in Colombia today, hmm. uh, 80 years later. Much weaker than they were, but they're still there. Uh, they have lost their Marxist rhetoric. Uh, in During the drug wars, they kind of bonded with the drug runners and they provided uh, security for the drug traffickers. Drug traffickers paid them very well for what they were doing. Um, so the army was fighting against uh, drug runners and the battle was not going well. In fact, on a monthly basis, the government would produce a map of Colombia that was divided between normal zones and red zones. If it was a red zone, it meant literally 
that the government of Colombia had no control there. The guerrillas ran that area. They policed that they, they did whatever they wanted to do there. So at that point in time, there was obligatory uh, military service. And uh, we had a 15-year-old son. And we were told once he turns 16, he'll not be able to get a passport to leave. Because when he's 18, he will pay military service. So while he was still 15, we decided to leave. I uh, I contacted OMS and I said, uh, we'd like to transfer to another country. We'd like to either go to Brazil or to uh, Mexico. And uh, the same guy who had come down to visit talked to the uh, new president of OMS. And he said... Uh, We'd like to propose, if you're going to leave Columbia, that you come back to Greenwood and run our HR department. And so I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't know beans about HR. So Bob wrote back, and he said, well, would you pray about it? And so I said, of course not. Why would I pray about what I know God doesn't want me to do? So the chair of the board of OMS had been invited to speak at a conference in our seminary, Dennis Kinlaw. I was translating for him. He came down and he said, Randy, I want to talk to you. He said, would you at least pray about this? Well, you don't tell Dennis Kinlaw that you're not going to pray about something. Right. So I started to pray about it. Within three months, I knew, yeah, that's that's what I needed to do. And so in 94, we moved here to Greenwood. I had been involved at New Hope Church prior to then. I was the first missionary that New Hope Church supported because I used to flip hamburgers with Daryl Riley, the founder, when we were both in seminary. Um, so I told Daryl that... I told Daryl he, he had come down on a mission trip during this time. And I, I told Daryl that we were wanting to come back and I would, I would attend New Hope. Now, the, the new airport in uh, Medellin was up on top of the mountain and there was a long, winding road. And uh, he had two elders with him, two of the main elders here at New Hope. Wayne was in the back seat. And I was telling Daryl that we wanted to, we were going to be coming back to Greenwood and I wanted to attend New Hope. And it was probably when I was passing a bus two cars deep on a blind curve that Wayne leaned over the back seat and said, Randy, I'll be glad to pay for your driving lessons when you come back to Greenwood. <laughs> And I figured, okay, I better slow down here. <laughs> I got a little bit excited going down and just kind of drove the way I normally would have. And that wasn't the way they were used to. So. Um, but we came back uh, then. I, I uh, worked in OMS in human resources for seven years. Couldn't get Latin America out of me. 
we stayed in Greenwood, but I managed um, all of Latin America. Uh, I was a, what, what OMS called a regional director for seven years. And at the end of that time, every year, my boss, the executive director of all ministries in OMS, he would hold an annual review, and one of his questions was always, is there any other job in OMS you'd like to do? And my answer was always, why, yes, Dave, there is, yours. <laughs> and we would laugh about that, and I would say, I'm not, I'm not looking for you to leave. But, yeah, when the time's right, I... Uh, around 2007, he said, time's right. He said, let's start acting on that. And uh, I became the executive director of all ministries in OMS and started traveling very extensively uh, after that. Uh, not just to Latin America. In fact, first thing I did was bring a friend of mine from Mexico who is Irish and I told him, I can't do all of this on my own, so you're Irish. Let me give you Europe and Latin America, and I'll take Africa and Asia. And uh, that's why we split up the world and uh, did that for seven years. And then uh, left, and here I am. Man. Yeah. So, like, you really didn't do much in all that time. <laughs> it was a wild trip. Um we saw uh, some of the things that, that I'm satisfied when I look back. <laughs> some of the things that I'm satisfied about when I look back. We made a big change in OMS in that division called Every Community for Christ that Stanley Tam supports. It's, it's a significant amount of money. It's several million dollars every year wow. for evangelism. Well, Stanley was kind of old school uh, knock on people's doors, and that wasn't cutting it worldwide. So we made a shift in the way OMS ran our ECC, Every Community for Christ program, from uh, hiring evangelists to hiring trainers, and we shifted to church planting. So we trained church planters who would start churches in their home. And we really began to see uh, decisions and, and churches multiply at that point. That was good. Uh, that, that, was, that was significant. The other thing that I look back at, and uh, it fills me with a great deal of joy, is that when we went to Columbia... We went with the idea of working with youth, and we were going to work with disciples. We were going to make disciples. There are a small number of guys that I poured myself into in Colombia. Now, I'll be honest with you, the first guy that I poured myself into, his name is William. Today, uh, if he is still alive, he's a hitman for the mafia. <laughs> really? Yeah. Not actually a hitman. He's what they call a boletero. Uh, he's the guy that when they put a hit out on somebody, he contracts the hitman. And uh, they were always pretty vindictive. They would let you know. So he would go to the guy who has the hit and say, uh, we got a contract out on you. <laughs> Man. 
he had a bodyguard. His bodyguard was killed at one point. But uh, last time I saw him was some, oh, gee, 30 years ago. But, uh, yeah, he said, uh, yeah, you know, I just kind of got sideways in life and couldn't pay my bills and dissipated. Other guys, they're still involved in the church. Uh, just some very, very special friends. Uh, people that are closer than a brother. One runs um, Prison Fellowship Columbia. One is retired now, but he was president of uh, one of our churches in Columbia. Took over the church that he and I co-pastored. We even did shared leadership back then. How about really? That? Yeah, I... That's the only way I can do stuff is in a team. I'm, yeah. God didn't build me to be alone. Uh, it's, um, yeah, William Guillermo Lasies. Just uh, people that uh, they mean a lot to me. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, Gustavo. Just number of people, and and when I look at if. If you talk about legacy, it's not courses, it's not classes or curricula, it's people. It's, it's this person is there. That I had a significant say in how he grew as a Christian, and he had a significant role in how I grew as a Christian as well. Kind of grew together. Absolutely. That's cool. That's, that's super cool. That's the way I think it's supposed to work. Well, yeah, because you can't just do it on your own. Right. There's no lone wolf Christians. Right. So that's right. not a thing. Right, right. And a passage that we don't talk about nearly enough. Uh, Jesus said at one point, call no man master. Call no man father. Call no man as another teacher. Hmm. What's he saying there? That we don't have fathers, we don't have to. Of course we do. But what he's saying is that in God's kingdom, the ground's level. Right. Come together. Come together. I help you, you help me. It's funny, though, we don't stack it that way in we a don't. lot of cultures. We don't. Yeah. <laughs> Even in ours. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We, we, we put pastors above other people. We put sure we teachers do. above. That's sure. not how it is. And even in pastors, there's the senior pastor, the yeah. one that calls the shot. and. Right. Somehow we make that a biblical principle. And I wonder if we've really grasped what Jesus was trying to say there. That's that's profound. I like that. Randy. Yeah. That was wild, man. God's I, been good. God's some, been good. Sometimes I didn't know like what to ask because I was like listening too hard. I was like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> it's like I, like I didn't want you to stop. You'd pause on me. I was like, oh, oh, I have to say something now. Um, that was awesome. Thank you for sharing that and You're welcome. talking about You're welcome. Yeah. all that craziness. Yeah. But yeah. got a little emotional. It's I like hard. that. I like that. It's hard not to get emotional about that particular time of life. Well, that's a super that powerful tough. part of your life. I mean, and 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 the I life of the church in Columbia. Yeah, I would not change a second of it. Man, and it was a struggle going back in 1988. Was really tough. It was a hard decision. Is one that I prayed through, and I was on the verge of saying nope, because <laughs> I knew 
the way things were headed. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Linda talked me off a cliff. Yeah. Said, nah, we need to do that. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, awesome. Yeah. Good stuff, dude. We need more stories like that. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. like that. Well, thank you guys for listening to Salty Saints Podcast. This is Randy Spate talking about his <laughs> life and faith and uh, just all the stories that that entails. If you uh, like what you heard today, uh, give us a, a like or a, a rating on whatever you're listening on. Uh, give us a comment. Um, give us a follow or a subscription if you're on YouTube. Um, thank you so much. Stay salty. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hard-working pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.